Greetings, everyone, and hope you're having a happy 2023 so far. I'm Dave Robinson, and this is Bench Talk the Week in Science. We've got three great stories for you today, so let's start right in. Let's start the show with something very serious, nuclear weapons. For the first time since the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, top government leaders in Moscow, Washington, and NATO, in fact all around the world, are facing the prospect of another world war, or even a nuclear war. In February of 2022, Leon Panetta, the former Secretary of Defense and Director of the CIA under Obama, was speaking of the war in Ukraine when he said, quote, this could potentially be a world war again. One mistake, one misjudgment, one weapon that goes astray could really light a war, unquote. Well, that was February of last year. In an October 12th, 2022 analysis, Panetta said that the probability of the use of tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine had risen from 1 to 5% at the start of the war up to 20 to 25% today. Five days after that, October 17th, 2022, NATO initiated the annual Steadfast Noon nuclear exercise in Europe, and a week after that, Russia launched its own scheduled strategic nuclear exercises. In his September 30th, 2022 speech, Russian President Putin said, quote, our country has different types of weapons as well, and some of them are more modern than the weapons that NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, we will certainly make use of all the weapon systems available to us. This is not a bluff, Putin says. The citizens of Russia can rest assured that the territorial integrity of our motherland our independence and freedom will be defended, and I repeat, by all the systems available to us, unquote. Now, the problem with this line of thinking is that Russia considers four regions of the Ukraine to be part of Russia. So when Putin speaks of territorial integrity, does that include the occupied regions of Ukraine too? What worries Western military experts is the Russian policy of escalate to de-escalate, meaning that if Russia seems to be losing the war, it might turn to tactical nuclear weapons as a way of convincing the enemy to stand down. This policy of escalate to de-escalate has been apparent in Russia as far back as 2016. And we might be seeing this escalate to de-escalate policy right now in the rampant bombing of Ukrainian electrical power stations by Russian cruise missiles and drones. Russian troops have been on the defense lately, and attacking the Ukrainian energy grid right in the middle of winter might be their own version of shock and awe against Ukrainian civilians. But perhaps the threat of nuclear weapon use in Ukraine is subsiding. On December 7, 2022, Putin was speaking of nuclear weapons when he said, quote, such a threat is growing. It would be wrong to hide it, unquote. But he asserted that Russia would under no circumstances use the weapons first and would not threaten anyone with its nuclear arsenal. Putin said, quote, we have not gone mad. We are aware of what nuclear weapons are. 
we aren't about to run around the world brandishing this weapon like a razor, unquote. And on the next day, December 8th, 2022, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz stated, quote, Russia has stopped threatening to use nuclear weapons in response to the international community, marking a red line, unquote. This was because he had just gotten assurances from China that they were aligned with the majority of the G20 countries in standing against nuclear weapon use. But don't get too complacent. There's a Swedish nonprofit advocacy group called Global Challenges Foundation, which releases their Global Catastrophic Risk Report every year, where they assess the worldwide risks of climate change, environmental degradation, and weapons of mass destruction. And their latest report, which was just released in November of 2022, says, quote, the risk of nuclear weapons use is greater now than at any time since nuclear weapons were first exploded over Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II, unquote. And there's another group, the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, that published their annual report on nuclear weaponry in June of 2022, and they reported that indeed the total number of nuclear weapons did decline slightly in 2021 due to the nuclear disarmament agreement called START. But those warheads that had been dismantled had already been retired from military service years ago. The number of stockpiled nuclear weapons has actually been going up. The START arms agreement only limits strategic weapons, while those nuclear weapons that are considered stockpiled are not regulated, and these stockpiles are increasing. So the Institute declared in June of 2022 that the post-Cold War declines in total nuclear arsenals is now ending. And it's not just the war in Ukraine that's of concern to these different observers of nuclear arms buildup. It's going on all around the world. North Korea conducted a record number of missile tests in 2022, including the first test over Japanese territory since 2017. North Korea fired more than 93 different crews and ballistic missiles in 2022. And satellite imagery indicates renewed activity around an underground nuclear bomb testing facility in North Korea, and that's where they tested their last hydrogen bomb back in 2017. And then there's China. They're building 300 new missile silos, and the United Kingdom has decided to increase its ceiling on total nuclear stockpiles. And France has just initiated its next generation nuclear submarine fleet. And then there's Iran. As you might remember, Donald Trump pulled out of a 2015 agreement with Iran that was designed to inhibit Iran's nuclear program. But since then, the Iranians have ramped up their uranium enrichment program. Now, they declare that the uranium is meant for their nuclear energy program, but the international community is concerned that Iran could achieve enough uranium purity in a few years to build a deliverable warhead. Israel, which doesn't officially admit to having nuclear weapons, is thought to be quietly modernizing its nuclear arsenal, and Pakistan and India are also expanding their nuclear arsenals. And then finally, in the United States, you might remember all the hullabaloo in the earlier part of December of 2022 
about the first nuclear fusion reaction that researchers had achieved that produced more energy than it took to initiate it. They actually got 50% more energy out than the energy they put into a reaction where hydrogen atoms were combined to form helium. It truly is an amazing scientific and engineering achievement, and it could eventually lead to a cleaner and safer way to generate electricity for the United States, although that's a long, long way off. Experts are saying something more like 30, 40, 50 more years. But other experts are saying maybe not at all. Peacetime generation of electricity is not really the short-term goal of this research project. This particular nuclear fusion experiment was performed at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory outside of San Francisco as part of their research program to develop an alternative to underground testing of nuclear weapons and presumably develop alternative nuclear weapons like pure fusion bombs. This nuclear fusion reaction took place at the National Ignition Facility. So don't fool yourselves. The main impetus for this research on nuclear fusion right now is the testing or the development of weapons of war, not peace. And why am I bringing up all this bad news? Well, I wanted to tell you about a recent commentary that was published in the journal Science on October 13, 2022. It was written by a Dr. Stephen Herzog, who's an expert on nuclear arms control who works at Harvard University. The title of his commentary was Beyond Nuclear Deterrence. Dr. Herzog's October 2022 commentary starts with a reminder that the Cuban Missile Crisis happened exactly 60 years beforehand, October of 1962. At that time, there were four nuclear-armed countries, the United States, the Soviet Union, Britain, and France. Today, there are nine countries with the addition of China, India, Israel, North Korea, and Pakistan. That certainly sounds bad, but he reminds us in the article that the total number of nuclear stockpiles in the world have actually decreased from nearly 70,000 warheads in the 1980s to about 12,700 today. And this is because of the non-proliferation treaties like the START Treaty and by the actions of the International Atomic Energy Agency. The nuclear weapons expert goes on to say, quote, New actors, proliferation risks, and intersections between nuclear and emerging cyber and artificial intelligence technologies challenge existing deterrence and non-proliferation theories. And most social science research focuses on living with nuclear weapons rather than their elimination, unquote. Dr. Herzog goes on to say that, quote, Just as the Cuban Missile Crisis changed nuclear thinking, the war in Ukraine necessitates new research programs. Social scientists can draw on perspectives of nuclear and non-nuclear states alike to identify strategies for protecting populations and vital interests without nuclear risks to survival. These international political realities should be reflected in the scientific literature. Interrogating nuclear deterrence calls for rigorous scholarship on nuclear disarmament 
and alternative frameworks of security in public discourse, peer-reviewed journals, and academic syllabi, unquote. In other words, I think he's saying that sociologists and psychologists and computer experts and historians, etc., they need to focus more of their scholarship work on preventing nuclear war rather than just studying how it's scaring all of us to death. Stephen Herzog is advocating for more novel thinking about this problem. He's also saying that there needs to be more practical research on nuclear disarmament. There have been a lot of recent innovations in neutron detection and noble gas monitoring and sensor technology, which would actually make it easier for international nuclear inspectors to know what's going on in the different countries but there needs to be more resources devoted to this type of what they call verification science before decision-makers can really trust the data. Dr. Stephen Herzog finishes his commentary in the October 13, 2022 issue of Science with a call to action. He says, quote, The Cuban Missile Crisis may seem distant, but nuclear dangers are not speculative fiction. Now is the time to fund and pursue scientific research for a world beyond nuclear deterrence. A new wave of scientific research is urgently needed to understand conditions for making global nuclear disarmament desirable and feasible, unquote. Hi, everyone. This is Mary Williams, and thank you for listening. Today my report is on a recent scientific study that basically asks this question. Could the after-effects of ancient plagues offer some possible immunity to modern-day viruses, such as COVID-19? Scientists believe that this is certainly a possibility. This research was performed by geneticist Louis Barrero, an anthropology professor and colleagues and was published in the October 2022 issue of the journal Nature. But first, a little history on the topic of their subject matter, specifically the after-effects of the Black Plague on the human genome. The Black Plague, also known as the Bubonic Plague, was a terrible disease that ravaged Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa during the period between 1346 and 1350. It was such a horrific time in human history that it accounted for the loss of between 30 and 50 percent of the population at that time. This significant mortality rate indicates that there was little or no pre-existing immune response to this disease. The plague was caused by the bacterium Yersinia pestis, also known as Y-Pestis. Y-Pestis is a gram-negative, non-motile, cockabacillus bacterium without spores that is related to two other Yersinia species that cause disease. It is a facultative anaerobic organism that can infect humans via the oriental rat flea. The plague was spread as infected individuals traveled from place to place over time. After the plague, death rates dropped over the next 400 years, which could possibly suggest that individuals who survived the plague 
might have a genetic variant that protected them from the Yersinius pestis bacterium. And that is what this study is all about. In 1348, deaths from the plague so overwhelmed the cemeteries of England that King Edward III purchased a plot of land which became a mass grave site for victims of the plague. This cemetery, known as East Smithfield, is the place where more than 700 people are buried, with layers and layers of bodies placed on top of each other. Because of the precise historical date for when it was in use, 1348 to 1349, East Smithfield represents a great place for studying the Yersinius pestis bacterium. In their study, the scientists observed the genetic variations in immune-related genes using outbreaks from both London and Denmark. This included 516 ancient DNA samples from people who had died before, during, and after the Black Death. They found 245 genetic variants that were significantly different in the pre- and post-Black Death samples. One of the variants was associated with the resistance to the Yersinia pestis bacterium. The researchers believe that the Y. pestis could have led to the development of resistance to the bacterium. Therefore, the team found that the Black Death created selective evolutionary pressure for genes that promote better immune support to Y. pestis. Professor Barrero stated, quote, Yes, it is a form of Darwinian evolution or positive selection. The idea is that individuals that harbored genetic variants that protected them against Y. pestis were more likely to survive the pandemic and pass their genes on to the next generation. We expect these variants to increase in frequency after the Black Death. Unquote. In this study, the scientists found not one, but four mutations that gave individuals an advantage over the plague. One mutation, which occurred in a gene called ERAP2, gave people a 40% advantage of survival against the Black Death. The ERAP2 gene is known for coding a protein called a peptidase that cuts up other proteins from invading pathogens. The protein lives inside immune cells called macrophages which ingest bacterial invaders such as Y. pestis. After ingesting the bacteria and slicing up its protein, the macrophage displays bits of chopped up proteins on its surface to create antigen warning flags to alert the rest of the immune system. People without this variant have a different version of ERAP2. Thus, it is possible that people can possess either two working copies of ERAP2, one working copy, or two non-working copies. As hypothesized, the immune cells of people with two working copies of the gene killed the bacteria better than the two non-working copies, and the single copy showed an intermediate performance. This ERAP2 gene helps to launch a source of the immune response earlier on in an infection. 
This suggests that past pandemics could have prepared the human immune system to survive future pandemics. It is believed that these gene mutations existed in some people during the plague, and especially the plague survivors, and thus passed these gene mutations on to their descendants. And many Europeans still carry those mutations today. But there is a downside, too. These gene mutations might also be making people more susceptible to autoimmune diseases such as Crohn's disease, rheumatoid arthritis, and lupus. So what could this mean for us as humans as we go forward in an ever-changing world with ever-evolving viruses and bacterium? Could these findings indicate what could possibly happen to the human genome after the COVID-19 pandemic? Could those of us who survived COVID-19 have change in our genome that we could possibly pass on to future generations? Through this study and possible future scientific efforts, we may someday know the answer. Only time will tell. This is Mary Williams signing off. Take care. Scott here. January usually means cold weather. The advantage to cold weather is that it does tend to dry out the atmosphere a bit, making for crisper viewing. The disadvantage is, it is cold weather. But there are sights to see that can be quite easy, so I steel myself against the cold, putting on a heavy coat, gloves, and a stocking cap, and head out. Early in January, under dark skies, some streaks of light might be seen. A meteor shower peaks in early January. Known as the Quadrantrid Meteor Shire, it peaks overnight from the evening of January 3rd to the early morning skies of January 4th, producing an average of about 40 or so meteors under dark skies near its peak. It is considered a moderate meteor shire. The radiant point, the location where the meteors seem to originate, will rise in the northeast. It is in that part of the sky near the end of the handle of the Big Dipper. So the radiant point will rise about an hour or so after the handle of the Big Dipper has had a chance to clear the horizon. But to see these meteors, you might best be facing east, north, and south. During January, we have shooting stars at the beginning of the month, easily identified constellations, and planets, though we will lose one of those while gaining another by the end of the month. Saturn and Jupiter have been quite visible in the southwestern sky, while Mars has dominated the southeast. Mars will be doing a slow fade over the next few months as we get farther and farther ahead of it in our faster orbit. But Saturn will pretty much be gone by the end of the month, only to be replaced by Venus. Venus begins making its appearance in the western sky as the month begins, but it may be difficult to spot while close to the horizon. But each night we'll find it a bit higher in the west, appearing to climb up towards Saturn. The two will meet in a conjunction, appearing side by side in the sky, the evening of January 22nd. A very thin crescent moon might also be glimpsed closer to the horizon if one is out around 6 in the evening. It will be east of the widening pair the next night. Saturn may be all but gone in the west as darkness falls by the end of the month. Jupiter is well above this pairing and a bit brighter in the southwestern sky is a bit to the left of the great square of Pegasus, also working its way to the western sky. The moon will pass it the nights of January 25th and 26th. 
We were closer to Mars back in December. Since our orbit is closer to the Sun than that of Mars, we begin moving away from it in our faster orbit from this point on. But Mars is close enough to appear to keep up a bit. Each night it will appear to be a bit more west of its current location until it finally disappears from the sky this summer. To verify its location, the moon passes by it on January 2nd and January 3rd, and again January 30th and 31st. With the planets identified, thought can now turn toward constellations. And we are in the winter sky, there are more than a few that stand out, both because of their shapes, and they contain, or are almost made completely of, bright stars. In the southeast, an easily found pattern of stars can be seen. The bright pattern of Orion the Hunter is well above the horizon in the evening skies of January. Throughout the rest of winter and on into spring, he will be seen to march across the southern sky before disappearing altogether later in the spring. What stands out most for many people is the line of three stars. Each are quite bright, and a line of stars close together is something not easily visible in the sky. These three stars are a belt, worn at the waist of Orion. A dimmer line of stars just south of the belt marks a sword tucked there. 10 by 50 binoculars or a small telescope will reveal that the middle star making up the sword is a gas cloud called the Orion Nebula. Here new stars are forming and their output causes the surrounding gas to glow like a neon sign. To finish up Orion, two bright stars north of the belt mark his shoulders. Two bright stars south of the belt mark his knees. If the skies are dark, that is, not light polluted, a small grouping of three stars midway between and up from the shoulder stars mark his head. Collectively, it is not too difficult to see a human figure among these stars. Another reason I like to find Orion is that, like the Big Dipper, combinations of stars in Orion lead to other stars in other constellations. This is particularly true of the belt stars. A line extended beyond the belt stars up into the west lead to Aldebaran. This star is the brightest in a constellation known as Taurus the Bull. Taurus is another constellation that is somewhat easy to picture, at least as far as his face and head. Aldebaran is pictured as one of his eyes. Near to Aldebaran can be seen a V-shaped group of stars with Aldebaran at the end of one of the arms of the V. The V-shaped pattern is a cluster of stars traveling together in space called the Hyades Star Cluster. Aldebaran happens to lie along the line toward that cluster, but isn't part of it. Aldebaran is closer to Earth, so this gives sort of a 3D effect with a little imagination. A bit west of the Hyades is a tighter grouping of stars called the Pleiades. They are also traveling together as a group in our galaxy, and are farther from us than the Hyades further allowing that 3D imagination thing to work. They also mark the shoulder of Taurus. If the line of stars marking each arm of the V-shaped Hyades is extended, two more relatively bright stars are reached, marking the tip of the horns of Taurus. So basically we see the front half of the bull. As prominent as Orion and Taurus are, and located next to each other in the sky, the ancient Greeks and Romans did not seem to create a story involving both. It would seem kind of natural, one being a hunter, the other the hunted. Maybe a task for a modern storyteller. 
Farther over in the eastern sky are a pair of stars of about the same brightness. These are the stars Castor and Pollux. They make up the heads of the brothers collectively called Gemini the Twins. Castor and Pollux are not only the name of the stars, but the names of each of the twins. A line of stars starting from each of these bright stars and stretched back in the direction of Orion mark their bodies. A good star map can help with this. As this is winter, staying out too long to hunt for these constellations all in one evening might be a physical challenge. But the constellations are not going anywhere, and taking one's time, picking up a new one each evening, then reviewing on future attempts, will make them seem like good friends. With each successful evening, they will become a bit easier to find. Clear skies. Thanks to Mary Williams and J. Scott Miller for their fascinating stories this week. I'm Dave Robinson, signing off. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk the Week in Science. See you next week.